Welcome back, Rail Splitter Nation. We are back from our little New Year's break and ready to bring you the part two of our coverage of Fredericksburg. Now, now, now. Not five, not four, not two, just three. The Rail Splitter, axe in hand, looking out at a frontier of hope and possibility. In excellent. To each other. And party on, dudes! Welcome to the Rail Splitter, the Abraham Lincoln Podcast. My name is Jeremy. With me this evening, our Rail Splitter Nick. What's going on, people? Listening to us on record players. <laughs> and Rail Splitter Mary. Happy New Year, Rail Splitters. I have tons of respect for those of you who uh, take our digital recording, uh, then somehow make it analog and burn it or craft it onto vinyl and listen to us on record players. So thank you for those of you who do that. So anyway, happy new year from the rail splitters. We're very happy to be back after taking a little bit of a holiday break. Um, so we'll fill you in on, um, our holidays really quickly, especially as it pertains to Abraham Lincoln. Uh, and um, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, but first, I just wanted to share a very interesting little tidbit that I came across. Um, I partake in different trivia things from time to time, and I stumbled across an interesting fact. So uh, the pride of Alberta, Canada, the Calgary Flames. Mary or Nick, does anybody know how the Calgary Flames or why they're called the Flames? I do. <laughs> Take it away, Mary. They I just learned be, this, and I was fascinated by it. They used to be called the Atlanta Flames after Sherman. That is correct. I had no idea. I actually got a trivia question correct. It was about, like, where did the Atlanta Flames move? Or they didn't say Atlanta Flames. That would have been too easy. The Atlanta franchise, they moved north. And I was like, just through process of elimination, I'm like, I don't know. So I guessed uh, Calgary, and it turned out to be right. But then I read the history behind it, which was pretty fascinating. Not only that they kept the name the Flames, but Atlanta had an NHL team for a very short time before the Thrashers. This was in like the maybe 80s, early 80s. Uh, and the reason they were called the Flames was because of uh, General William Sherman, uh, which I found odd. And I don't think they would probably name them after that of him burning the city down, but that's that's why they're called the Flames. Um, so the Canadian, right there smack dab in the middle of Canada, Flames of the NHL are called that because of Sherman. So yep. um, if you thought that the Canadian Sherman connections began and ended with Rail Splitter Mary, Civil War fangirl herself, you were wrong. There are several Canadian Sherman connections all the way up to the highest level of professional hockey in the world in the Calgary yep. Flames. So anyway, I thought that was interesting, a little piece of trivia for everyone uh, in case you're ever um, – that's sometimes a common trivia question, like when franchises move and all that kind of stuff. Like um, there's a great bit at the beginning of base, basketball that talks about the moving of franchises and how the New Orleans Jazz moved to Utah where they don't allow music. and It's a funny joke. you got to see it. But anyway, um, so <laughs> – Mary Nick, how were your holidays? Did you get any Lincoln-related gifts um, that you wanted to talk about at all? I didn't get any Lincoln-related gifts, but I did get a gift certificate for Amazon. So or basically, Amazon yeah. gift card. So basically, <laughs> I will be buying myself Lincoln-related stuff. Um, over the holidays, I, I'm working my way through two different books about Gettysburg right now. Um, one is written by Noah Ant. Andre Trudeau, and the other is just um, an emerging Civil War series book. I can't remember the authors right now, but it's just focusing on day one. So I did spend um, some of my free time reading those books over the holidays. Cool. Sweet. I don't think I got any Lincoln stuff for the holidays. I got my rail splitter hoodie, though. That came in the mail. Oh, nice. So that's here along with the millions others sporting the hoodies. So you when can... we see each other, high-five each other. I will uh, tweet out another um, link, but it's uh, if you go to Teespring, T-E-E-Spring.com, uh, you can find uh, the Rail Splitter store there. Uh, and we have sold a handful over the holidays of T-shirts, hoodies, and coffee mugs. Uh, so if you want to join the club, 
uh, you're welcome to do that. And you might see a couple around. So um, we're really looking forward to seeing some selfies pop up of folks wearing rail splitter gear out in the wild, out at Civil War sites and Lincoln sites and uh, things like that. So um, I don't think, I hope I don't offend anybody who got me something now that I'm thinking about, but I don't think I got any Lincoln things either. Uh, last year was the first year where we were doing the show. So I felt like I got a lot of, you know, people got a lot of their Lincoln stuff out of the way because we were so public with our uh, Lincoln fandom. Um, I did get the uh, uh, Obama coffee table book, which is presidential, of course, and, and quite cool. Um, and, you know, a dream guest on the show is Pete Souza, who was the, uh, who did the Obama book, because I'd love to wonder what his thoughts on Matthew Brady would be because Matthew Brady of course was kind of the first presidential photographer um, in a real way um, taking tons and tons and tons of Civil War photographs in the early days of photography but also several portraits of Abraham Lincoln. Um, I always thought that would be a cool idea so if anybody knows uh, Pete Souza who's an amazing Twitter and Instagram follower by the way tell him we'd love to talk to him. Uh, so it's been a while. Uh, normally when we do two-parters, we don't like to have a big gap between episodes, but uh, with the holidays and the new year, we took a little bit of time for uh, our friends and family. So um, we are going to continue our coverage of Fredericksburg. Um, Mary or Nick, you guys did a lot of the heavy lifting when talking about Fredericksburg. Did you just want to do a brief maybe fill-in of where we're at Um for our listeners and kind of for me also just since it has been a minute since we recorded that yep so we're in our last episode about fredericksburg we covered basically just the lead up to the battle so what the kind of the situation was like um who's involved so it's army of the potomac versus uh army of no northern virginia uh, Army of the Potomac is being led by General Burnside. He hasn't been in charge for too long at this point. Uh, Army in Northern Virginia, as we all know, is being led by General Robert E. Lee. Um, so Burnside's plan was basically to get to Richmond before Lee and cut him off and I think effectively end the Civil War. But in order to get to Richmond, he needs to go through Fredericksburg. And in order to get through Fredericksburg, he's got to cross the Rappahannock River. And to do that, he needs pontoon bridges. And for whatever reasons, like bureaucratic delays and just a few other things that happened, um, basically very series of unfortunate events, basically that um, the pontoon bridges don't make it to where they need to be with Burnside in the Army of the Potomac until um, late November, early December, 1862. And when Burnside is ready on November 14th to build the bridges, they're not there. So because of the delay, General Lee has managed to find where Burnside is and he has entrenched himself at Fredericksburg. And by entrench, I mean, he's um, there's one troop of Barksdale's Mississippians. Um, have, they've managed to build up all these fortifications along the river right where they're going to be building the pontoon bridges. Um, so they've clearly had a few weeks to do that. Um, so for all intents and purposes, um, Burnside can't do his original plan but he still needs to go after Lee. And as we discussed in the previous episode, this is because that he doesn't want to basically pull a McClellan and not pursue Lee and end up getting fired. Um, so he's very much got it in his head that he's got to have a victory and he needs to go after Lee at whatever the cost may be. Perfect. Perfect summary. You must you. work at a museum. <laughs> <laughs> or a library, one of the two. Yeah, I, uh, I almost felt like we should have like started with previously on the rail splitter, uh, but that was a good uh, summary of where we're at so far. Uh, we also have a little bit of a treat for everyone for this episode because Nick, rail splitter Nick, everyone's favorite rail splitter, went to Fredericksburg between part one and part two to give himself a firsthand look at the battlefield. He walked the, the battlefield, literally. Uh, so he will take us through his experience as a visitor of Fredericksburg yeah. uh, here <laughs> in a little bit. Um, also, it'll be interesting. I would like to hear, Nick, your take on visiting a national park during this shutdown to see how that impacted everything. Uh, but let's go ahead and finish the, uh, the rest of the battle, and then we'll get to that. 
So we begin on December the 11th with the supplies having finally arrived for the construction of the pontoon bridges. Um, so early that morning, um, so keep in mind, it is December. The waters of the Rappahannock are going to be icy and it's cold out. Um, it's also foggy, which is to a little bit to the union's advantage at this point. Um, so Burnside's engineers begin assembling these pontoons along the Rappahannock River. So there's going to end up being six in total. Um, two are directly across from Fredericksburg and then the others are from them. And the fog is going to help for some time, for a little while anyway, obscure the Union engineers from the Confederate skirmishers. Burnside's also made sure that there's artillery set up in order to help protect the engineers as well as the infantry once the infantry begins to cross. So further downstream from Fredericksburg, um, by about 11 a.m., two of the bridges are complete. And these are General Franklin's left Grand Division where he is going to cross. And just another thing to add in from the previous episode that we discussed was that the Army of the Potomac has a different makeup. It's divided into three Grand Divisions, left, center, and right. And it's not, it's very different from what was at um, Getty, First Corps, Second Corps, Third Corps, and so on. Um, so anyway, Franklin's got these bridges done by 11 and he had... He was under fire from General Hood's troops, but his artillery um, managed to drive them off. And so even though these bridges are done by 11 o'clock, he does not get orders from Burnside to cross until 4 o'clock that day. And only a single brigade makes it across before dark. And this is basically like just how things seem to go with Fredericksburg, that orders are not given on time. Um, there's not troops where they need to be. And it's very, very confusing. Um, so back up to the bridges that are across, right across from Fredericksburg. And these troops had a hell of a time trying to get them done. So the fire here is more concentrated. And that's because of, as I mentioned earlier, General, General William Barksdale and his Mississippi Brigade were so well entrenched that they've constructed rifle pits, fortified houses, and buildings along the riverbank and they just are opening a steady fire um, upon Union engineers as they work on these bridges. And one Union engineer said, for us to lay a pontoon bridge right in their very faces seemed like madness. And then as the fog lifted, the madness just turned into simple murder, that was all. And this eerily will set the tone um, for what is to be the Battle of Fredericksburg for the Union Army. Um, and I, I want to add, like, you know, being there because we actually walked out to where like Burnside's headquarters was the, the manor out there. And I went down. So I went on both banks where that pontoon, the northernmost pontoon bridge was laid. And like if Mary, if Mary was standing across the river from me, like I'd be able to see her. So and then you take that with people who are in buildings across the river. Now they're shooting at you and have that protection. And then another thing that we find, you know, throughout warfare is, yeah, artillery works if you're in open field. But when you're in a house that has cellars available to you and you bomb the shit out of it, it's still not going to get rid of them because they're just going to go into cellars and they'll be able to survive. And th that's really just kind of the mess that they're in. And those engineers putting that pontoon bridge, I mean, they were just sitting ducks, especially once that fog went away. I mean, they were just sitting ducks there and... I could totally, it's just seeing it all is just crazy. And just seeing that you could see the bank from where Burnside's headquarters was up on that hill. And you could see the town there and just had to sit there for like a week or 10 days or however long it was. Just staring at that town, knowing the Confederates are just settling in to slow you down. Had to be, I, I couldn't even imagine what, it had to be very frustrating and irritating for Burnside to know that. So... The visual being there, like that's the one thing I had probably, well, one of the things that I definitely gained a lot more respect for seeing that. Yeah, that was one thing that I found with, with you know, researching this battle was I had so many moments of, I can't even imagine what that would have been like. Like what, you know, you're a union engineer and you're told, go out and build this pontoon bridge. And it sounds so simple, but, oh yeah, by the way, there's going to be sharpshooters firing at you but we'll don't worry we'll drive them off with artillery but then they're going to come back 
Um, and I can't imagine like just the chaos that would have been ensuing right from day, you know, December 11th of this battle. Um, so the shard, they get driven off temporarily by the heavy union artillery, but when the engineers return to finish their work, so did the sharpshooters. And, um, like, that's really what Nick said about, you know, if he and I were standing across from each other, we'd be able to see each other. That really puts it into perspective for me now, how that, how that was all going. Um, but General Franklin, who had his pontoon bridges ready to go by 11 o'clock, he comes down to talk to Burnside and he says, you can come down and cross that mine. And uh, Burnside thinks this is too risky. And he demanded that the engineers complete the bridges at whatever the cost. And I don't know what um, you two think about this, but I think he's thinking back to Antietam and Burnside Bridge and just the bottleneck of troops and that he does not want that to happen again. And he wants to keep his lines spread out as much as possible. Yeah, I think there's a lot of that. And I think that too, um, I think that as it's, it's difficult, I think for people in the 21st century to realize, mm-hmm. you know, um, how s- difficult it is to make troop movements. Um, so like he may have actually been right in that case, you know, like mm-hmm. I don't think it's necessarily a given that like, Oh man, he was throwing these people out to be slaughtered. Um, building the bridge so he could cross when he could have just crossed right down the river. I don't mm-hmm. think it's, it's quite that simple, you know, to, to reissue orders, to pull back, to move down, to cross yeah. there. Like, you know, like it's easy just to kind of, you know, Nick, you were there, but to stand there and be like, why didn't they just cross down there? You know, it, because they lost the battle, it, it seems almost too easy sometimes to criticize every decision along yeah. the way just to be like, well, here was the fatal mistake. They did it here. Well, what's to say that the, both decisions were wrong. You know, they, they, they would have, they would have been beaten at either mm-hmm. spot. Um, perhaps not as badly, perhaps it wouldn't have been as bad, you know, yeah. whatever. But I, but I think that, um, sometimes the critique of decisions, particularly for folks like McClellan and Burnside and Hooker, mm-hmm. and it was like, look at this dumb decision and this dumb decision, like they may have lost either way, you know? So I think that th- in this case in particular, he, he may have been right not to yep. continue to do what he was doing, but he may have been right in deciding not to um, pursue going down and crossing those other bridges. Who knows, though? It's oh, hard yeah. to see. And Nick, I don't know what it was like actually being there. Like, what was your take on it? Well, I mean, the Franklin pontoons, the southernmost one, I mean, that's at least a two-mile, three-mile hike mm-hmm. with troops, with artillery, you know, with all the intangibles there going down there, you know, moving that many troops and, you know, obviously, after you try to make this crossing, then you start seeing all these troops back off. I mean, you're going to have the Confederates could possibly adjust and it could become mm-hmm. Burnside's bridge. So I think it's fair to say, you know, I don't think we should blame Burnside for that at all. Um, and that part for not deciding to send them all across Franklin's bridge. I think that's a little unfair um, to criticize him on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just thought I'm like, well, is that what he was like? afraid of but yeah like do see his like you know your point too like yeah absolutely like to move them that far would just have been you know and who knows what franklin was thinking if he was just like we can get them across my bridges are done but then you've got to change like your whole order of battle i mean burnside had his reasons for wanting them crossing at certain points um to keep them you know spread out in the long line in order to to take fredericksburg And eventually Burnside will turn the artillery on Fredericksburg itself. So about 150 cannons. Um, And this causes a lot of damage and destruction to many um, homes and buildings. And some of the Union regiments at this time, they managed to get themselves into boats and they row themselves across the river. And this surprised Barksdale's men. So they all go into town. So now there's um, fighting happening in the town, but this allows Burnside to complete the rest of the bridges by 4.30. But by this point, it's December and it's getting dark. So the a few brigades get across, but the rest have to wait till the next day. Um, and so by the end of the day, four brigades of Union troops are occupying the town um, and they do some looting and they cause some damage. And the destruction angered a lot of Confederate troops because they called Virginia home. And Lincoln did receive some, some dispatches telling him of the successful crossing of the Rappahannock and the troops cheering Burnside. Um, 
but how today, how December 11th went um, with there not being clear orders and delays is basically how the rest of the battle, like from what I've read about it, that seems to be the biggest criticism upon Burnside is that there's just all these delays and confusion as to what's going on and stuff. Um, so into December 12th, the remainder of the Union Army is crossing the river and Burnside does not really organize them organize an attack on this day and many of the buildings are still smoldering from the artillery bombardments the day before and this is one of the first major urban combats of the war which i find very interesting about this battle that this is the first time that they've been fighting in the streets and that the citizens are seeing war firsthand and what it's like and their homes have been destroyed um so the looting had happened the night before and there's a one New Hampshire colonel wrote that the conduct of our men and officers too is atrocious and their objects needs to be destroyed what they can't, what they can't steal, what they to, to be to destroy what they can't steal and to steal all they can. Um, and Sears called it one of the ugliest days for the army of the Potomac. He's actually pretty critical of Burnside in his book and, uh, lieutenants and of what happened at Fredericksburg. So what are your thoughts on the looting that happened and um, how the army of the Potomac is being perceived for that? Yeah, I mean, I think definitely, I mean, in some cases you might be able to argue that it was worth worse conduct than, you know, Sherman's mm -hmm. march, because you can make the argument Sherman's march was more targeting um, stuff that was needed for mobilization yeah. uh, for war. Whereas these guys were just going in, you have many accounts just going in, just basically looting um, the town's homes and everything and just going in there, you know, getting drunk um, and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, it definitely is not one of the brighter moments. Um, unfortunately, it's not something that's, you know, unique to just this war, um, you know, mm -hmm. this this part reactions, which I'm not, but um yeah, I definitely think it's a scar on the Army of Potomac for sure. And another thing, you know, this is also kind of the first urban warfare that mm -hmm. we see. And I kind of always viewed the crossing of the river kind of the first amphibious attack in a yep. way. Um, and learning a lot of lessons that will be used as such things as D-Day and stuff like that. So mm -hmm. Fredericksburg is kind of very unique in that sense where it's a lot of first um, that you kind of see and um, where we're going with modern technology. Yeah, but yeah, back to looting, definitely a scar. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm I'm a little envious of you, Nick, for being. And Mary, have you ever been to Fredericksburg? Never. Oh. I might go. I'm going to Richmond in April, so I might do a side trip mm. to Fredericksburg because I really want to see it. Yeah, and that's why I'm I'm almost envious of folks who have been able to go because, like, I this is the one battle I have the hardest time picturing in my mind's eye. And who knows? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, they're always obviously none of it's accurate, but like. I feel like when you see the maps and you and you hear the you know you're watching Ken Burns or whatever you're doing like I feel like you can kind of get an idea of Gettysburg like well I've been to Gettysburg but like maybe Shiloh um, very much Shiloh like it's hard to picture for me Fredericksburg mm -hmm. because it's you know because you've got different settings you know it's it's you know you think about urban warfare and urban combat and you know my mind wants to picture like building to building house to house. Like there's, but like there's a lot of artillery involved in this and there's thousands of troops. So like, mm -hmm. how does, you know, like to wrap my head around visually, like what did that look like when they come in and then they do all the looting and then all of a sudden now, then there's more artillery. And um, so I like to read accounts of it because I think that it's, you know, kind of like what Nick said, it's just so unique and it's got snippets of other parts of the war, but it's really the only time that all of those are brought together. Um mm -hmm. You know, even with like, like Lookout Mountain, I think is kind of tough because it's like that one almost to me, weirdly, I think um, not to get too off topic, but Lookout Mountain to me was like had the opposite effect. Like I felt like I could picture it and then I went there and I'm like, how did mm -hmm. they have a battle on this thing? <laughs> like, how did I know they, that's what, what I thought too. I'm like, how the heck were they running up this hill? <laughs> right. Like, I'm just like, you know, I barely made it up there in my car. I'm like, you know, yeah. so like that one I was like. I thought I had a pretty good idea what that battle may, may have looked like. And then I stood there, I'm like, man, I, I can't even picture how this would look to have people coming at me 
and yet, you know, you've got this vantage point. So that's kind of just interesting little side point on visiting places. But I do think Fredericksburg, of all battles, is the is the hardest one to really get an idea of, like, what was that combat actually like? Um, and in the Ken Burns documentary, Shelby Foote says some, a lot of insightful things about Fredericksburg, but he kind of points to that as looking at the Union really proving the resolve. Um, they don't really talk about the looting as much, um, but that, the, that they were willing to take on that barrage and, and, and they were very brave about it. Uh, but yeah, I think the mm-hmm. urban, you know, and of course we're saying urban, it's Fredericksburg, Virginia. It's not, you know, New York, you know, so I mean, it yeah. just happened in a town, but it was in the town as opposed to the outskirts, like like all the other battles. Mm-hmm. Reading the book that did the Fredericks campaign, you know, to me, you talk about because like you have a lot of this happening in Afghanistan or probably more so in Iraq, where you went into some of these older towns, you know, you got to clear out these houses. I don't think it was vastly different in a lot of senses. Like the problem with urban warfare or when you go in and there's buildings there, you got to sweep the buildings and get them out. It doesn't matter if it's 2018 or 1862 or 63 which is just kind of mind-boggling to think that that aspect hasn't changed much in war in a lot of sense. Right. I think the, I think at Fredericksburg it was a lot more assumed that there were, you know, the, the enemy combatants, like the, there, there was a line, right? Like there was, you know, yeah, it wasn't like a blurred yeah, that, thing. That, like you didn't know if the enemy was in a building or not in a building. And the level of artillery I think was a lot higher. But, yeah, to your point, like they could be anywhere in like – you know, movements, you're, 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 you know, you're, you're confined by streets. Like you can only move like you do when you're traveling. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's a very fascinating battle for sure. Yeah. And it's, what I find interesting is that it's one of the, it to me, it seems the, the not studied as much. And I sometimes wonder if that's because it's Nick, you said it's not, as well preserved as say like obviously Gettysburg or um, Chickamauga, right? Like I'm wondering if people can't get a feel for what the battle was like as much as other places. Like, what do you think? Yeah. I've been to Shiloh, Antietam, Gettysburg, as well as some other smaller ones, but those being, you know, three major Mm -hmm. ones, those are all, you got it all. They got monuments everywhere. You know, they, they got a lot of different artillery pieces mm-hmm. laid out. You could definitely get a visual. Fredericksburg is a lot tougher because obviously it took place in the city. Buildings changed. Stuff's been constructed over there now. Um, They do a nice job with the markers. But the thing that's really changed, which I, I know you're going to talk about here, is on the, the 13th when they're charging the heights and they're going through town and they're getting outside of town. And basically there was this mill. So they had to go up a hill, and there was this water that they tried to drain. They weren't able to get out of there. And then they had to go back down another slope mm-hmm. before they got close to um, the sunken road there and the, bri- and, uh, and the brick wall there, um, the stone wall. And that's all been built on, and a lot of it's been leveled out. So that part is very hard to try to visualize exactly as opposed to going to Gettysburg and you could stand right where Pickett's, you know, high mark was and look across that field and great, the great visual. You can't get that as far as the fighting that took place in Fredericksburg. Mm -hmm. You can get a sense of that out in prospect Hill, which is going to be the union left out there where Franklin is. And that's where uh, Stonewall ends up being. You can get a sense there because that's still relatively open and clear. Um, but yeah, I mean, it definitely helped being there. But still, you, you wonder what it would truly look like with all those buildings not built there, mm-hmm. and they're probably and they're probably all haunted too. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> then with that, we'll go on to December the thirteenth, which is probably the best, like what is most known of the battle, which is um, Prospect Hill and Mary Tights. So the day is cold and overcast. And, um, again, there's, you know, confusion happening, um, with the orders and such. And so Burnside has decided he's going to mount a series of assaults on the Confederates on Prospect Hill, as well as Mary's Heights. And so the attack is along a very long front. Um, so to begin with Prospect Hill, which is where General Franklin is attacking, um, 
this is where the Union manages to make a break in the Confederate line. And it is actually General Meade, who we did an episode about. Um, and he breaks through Stonewall Jackson's line um, with the help of General John Gibbon. And Meade wrote to his wife and said, my men went in beautifully, carried everything before them and drove the enemy for nearly half a mile, which is pretty considerable um, when you think, you know, what he's up against. Um, but Meade received no support from the gains he made. He sent a message to get help from David Burney's Third Corps, but Burney responded that he only took order, orders from Reynolds and Reynolds is like, Reynolds isn't there to say, go do this. So finally Meade, the third time he refused his order, Meade goes to him and it's said that he lit into Bernie in full voice to almost make the stones creep. And Meade was known for his temper. Um, so after that, Bernie sent forward two regiments, but it was unfortunately too late. Gibbon also ended up getting wounded and pulled off the battlefield. And he had new brigade leaders who just, they stalled when Gibbon left. They didn't really know what to do. Um, and then um, afterwards, Meade would later blame his failure on Burnside and his inability to communicate. And he also came close to losing his life when a bullet went through his hat. So when he ran into John Reynolds after he and his troops had retreated, he said, my God, General Reynolds, did they think my division could whip Lee's whole army? So Meade is not very happy about this, but he is um, he manages to break through the Union line. But mind you, he does not. He's on a different different kind of ground than what is happening over at Mary's Heights. Yeah. And this is where a lot of the confusion comes in for Burnside mm -hmm. because Burnside was, that was supposed to be his main, you know, attack was actually on yeah. the union left to mm -hmm. turn the flank there. But yet Franklin and the orders that sent down, there's confusion. So he's sending it in piecemeal at a time. Yep. Whereas they might've been able to do it if they sent in, obviously and supported me there. And you can see that pretty well. Meade's kind of marks, they got like what's called Meade's Pyramid. It's just like a pyramid of <laughs> rocks built up by the, okay. where now a railroad track is. At that yeah. time, they were just cutting it out. Um, but yeah, there was basically, there's a seven mile, I believe it's a seven mile Confederate front. Um, and, and I felt all seven miles of those um, on the way out and on the way back, <laughs> so everybody knows. Um, and a lot of Stonewall's, Guys were dug in trenches. Mm -hmm. and you could actually see the trenches still to this day. Wow. The issue was there was a wooded area where they didn't, where the line was extremely thin, thinking that there's no way that they'd be able to go through there. And that's where kind of Meade and Gibbons guys ended up pushing through, caught them by surprise. Um, and the funny part, Stonewall wasn't on the battle, like right in that area. He was over with Lee on Lee's Hill, which is kind of in the middle of Mary's Heights and Prospect Hill. Um, but, oh, uh, God, who is it? Early? Is that right? Yes, I think yes. it's early. Yep. Who was in the shithouse, or the shithouse, the doghouse <laughs> with Stonewall um, because he didn't respond good enough. So he was a little hesitant, but eventually he does send in some reinforcements there to push Meade back before he could get any help. So possibly a missed opportunity. And... In a lot of books I was reading, especially the Fredericksburg campaign, it's almost two different battles. Mm -hmm. And it's two different terrains for sure. And the Prospect Hill is like its own battle. And the Union came pretty close to, you know, turning that flank. Or I don't know if they, they could have come close to turning that yeah. flank. Um, but yeah, yeah, a lot of miscommunication there. And Franklin and Burnside will hold Franklin responsible for a lot of the failures at Fredericksburg. Mm hmm. Yeah, and as Nick said, you know, different terrains, like over at Mary's Heights, like that's where Sumner and then eventually Hooker are attacking with their troops. And this is where General Longstreet um, and his troops are in place. And Mary's Heights was, and correct me if I'm wrong, Nick, it's like 40 or 50 feet above the plane where the Union troops would be running on. Like, is that how it, I keep trying to visualize it in my mind that that's. Yeah, I mean. It's a good sled hill if it's snowy. Um, and there wasn't a cemetery now um, yeah. there. But, yeah, it, you could definitely – you can oversee the city from where you're mm -hmm. at. Um, definitely, I mean, there was no chance in hell. There was just no chance. But the fact that they had artillery, 
with the sunken road. I mean, you're talking a stone wall about their height at that time where they could line up four deep and they're just looking over this. They didn't even sniff it. So I, I've been reading like 50 yards is about as close as they got. Yeah, that's and they Porter Alexander Longstreet's artillerist said a chicken could not live in that field when we open it. And he also said that I never thought Burnside would choose this point for for the attack um, because his gun batteries were so well posted. Um, but Burnside's orders were to seize the high ground of the west of the city. And that's what you want to do in a battle is take the high ground. Um, so Sears argues um, in his book, Lincoln's Lieutenant that the federal artillery assigned a Sumner's offensive at Mary's Heights lacked any central direction and proved nearly useless in supporting the assaulting columns. And there was divisions, including when Hancock sent his in, that would attack with no artillery support. And if you're attacking with no artillery support, like you're like, it's like you're just running and odds are you're going to get cut down a lot quicker than anybody else. Right. And there was guns posted across the river at Stafford Heights and they were at extreme firing range and they inflicted very little damage. So by mid afternoon, Sears states that Ambrose Burnside was trapped in a fog of indecision. And this was something we mentioned in the previous episode that Burnside would get trapped in this kind of fog. And I don't know if he didn't really know what to do or he just, you know, if I were him, I would have been extremely overwhelmed. Like here he is getting reports of Meade and Gibbon, Gibbon being driven back. Gibbon's been wounded um, and there's also these repeated attacks on Mary's Heights, which are getting horrifically repulsed. So he calls in Hooker's center, Central Grand Division to help out. And Hooker meets with the other generals and they do sort of like a reconnaissance and they decide that they shouldn't attack. And um, he tell, Hooker goes to Burnside and tells him this and Hooker and Burnside, they don't really get along very good at all. And um, Burnside says, no, we still need to try and do this. By this point, the Confederates are being reinforced along Mary's Heights with General Pickett's division, as well as one of General Hood's brigades coming in. And Hooker had no choice but to attack. And he said, it was like attacking a mountain of rock. Finding that I had lost as many men as my orders required me to lose, I suspended the attack. And I think his were the last troops to go in that day. Yeah, I mean, I went down to the middle pontoon crossing and then, so we walked from there up all the way to where the sunken road was, which has to be about a mile, maybe a mile and a half. So you got these guys who are crossing this. They already know troops have not been successful. So you're walking this mile and a half walk up to this. You hear all the artillery, the guns. You're seeing wounded soldiers come back. You know, we we'll probably talk about guys who probably have lost limbs coming back you know the artillery you're starting to get in range of that that's taking out some of you and then you literally start getting within 100 150 200 yards of the wall and then you just got troops laying there i mean you literally heard um god i can't think of whose division it was off the top of my head um but one of the divisions went in and like the guys are in their way grabbing their legs as they lay there telling them don't go and they're trying to get as close to that wall and like I just can't imagine the carnage that was there and the chaos. You already had the city shelled, you know, um, the looting on top of that. And then now all these wounded soldiers going there. And then it, it, if you being there, you can't imagine sending troops to try to take that area. It's just it's completely mind boggling. You, you understand why the numbers came out the way they did. There was just. To me, there was no chance. There was better of a chance of Pickett's charge being successful than them taking uh, Mary's Heights, especially going in piecemeal like they did. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I thought too. I think there was 15 individual charges that day, seven Union divisions sent in, one brigade at a time, and there was between six and 8,000 men lost, and Confederate losses were around 1,200. And General Longstreet said the charges had been desperate and bloody, but utterly hopeless. And he's probably, you know, who knows what he's thinking watching this all happen. Um, you know, and and really, if you think about it, something very similar is about to happen to him in July. 
1863 with Pickett's charge when he has to, when he orders Pickett to run across that field, like it's kind of a, it's kind of like it's reversed. Um, and the 20th Maine is one of the divisions that fights um, yeah. that day with Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain leading them. And they actually, they don't suffer as many casualties as other divisions, but they do spend a long cold night in the field. Um, and Chamberlain details this in his diary, describing having to use the bodies of fallen men for shelter, as well as a pillow while he listens to bullets hit corpses around him. And um, this part was also in Jeff Scherer's novel, Gods and Journals, which I highly recommend reading. Actually, in any of his books are excellent, but I loved Gods and Journals, but this part, this chapter haunted me. Like it was, it really, like I had so many visuals in my head of what that must have been like. It was, I can't even imagine laying in the cold December night and you're just covered with, you know, like covered by bodies. Um, but there was one story of a man named Sergeant Richard Roland Kirkland of the second South Carolina. And he became known as the angel of Mary's Heights because he actually climbed over the stone wall and he provided the union troops that were wounded with water and comfort. Yeah, and they got a one of the few actual monuments that are out there. Um, there is one dedicated to him mm-hmm. there. So, yeah, I mean, like I guess for our listeners, it's like basically the Confederates were trench warfare. They were in a trench, and at one point there was, in some cases, on along that sunken road, four deep. One guy would shoot, and either they would rotate or they would pass up a gun. They shoot at him again, shoot at him again. They were so close and had such good cover that the guys literally had to lay there still for over 24 hours because if they moved, they would just be pegged off. I mean, and then you talk about a winter night, just laying there, the cries, the moaning of all these people just dying. It's it's hard to wrap your mind around it. Yeah, I I said that chapter in Gods and Journals just it 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 was haunting to read that I and that was my first, that was my introduction to the Battle of Fredericksburg was was that chapter and um very well written I haven't read um I've read I haven't read Chamberlain's account of it before but I can imagine it's just as as eerie to read I just remember what I wanted to bring up too you were talking about Robert E. Lee making the decision to pick its charge. One of the people that was outspoken against doing that was Longstreet. Yeah. And the guy who was on uh, Mary's Heights there is Longstreet. Mm-hmm. And he's seen just how the advantage lies with the defensive, with this new technology um, and the modern warfare at that time. And a lot of historians believe this was – in some cases, Longstreet's moment re-realizes the importance of being on the defensive when you could be. Yeah, and that's what I wondered when I was, you know, it was eerie to me, you know, when I was researching this, that it's like Longstreet is going to be on the other side in July. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, he's going to be the one that, like, Pickett's part of his division and, you know, Lee's telling him, like, we're going to do this, and he's Longstreet saying, you know, this is, we can't do this. And um, I just wonder if he thought back to Mary's Heights and kind of knew what was going to happen. Yeah. No, I, I mean, it's got to, I mean, it had to wait. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's what really made it like click for me with, and having just been at Getty, you know, been, been at Gettysburg and standing from where, you know, Longstreet would have stood there before the charge happened and I thought back to that, and I thought, yeah, he probably did think of what had happened at Mary's Heights. Yeah, and I think just more generally speaking, I think that's just an interesting concept to consider is the degree to which previous battles impacted future battles, and the mm-hmm. commanders and you know generals and you know officers like, you know, how could it not? You know, everything, everything, yeah. you know, and it's not, you know, this is so many, so much in four years, not that much time. So of course I think it had an impact here, but also kind of generally speaking, like I wonder how that, that changed people. And I think when you look at uh, other generals, specifically Grant, um, he may be one who, 
uh, I don't know if I would say impacted differently or, you know, the, the losses didn't, didn't take a toll in the same way on him. I'm sure, it, I'm sure every single loss weighed on him. I mean, he's, he's human and a kind person, but like, didn't the, 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 the huge losses didn't seem to uh, weigh on him in the same way. Um, but I think that, yeah, that, that fog of indecision that they talk about with Burnside was probably a lot of, you know, just, I don't want to say necessarily, you know, trauma of some sort, I guess, mm-hmm. of him trying to, you know, figure out how is he going to get out of this mess. Because, um, you know, I don't think PTSD is necessarily limited to people directly involved in combat. I mean, can you imagine no. being in, con- in control of a division or a corps or an army and sustaining the casualties like they did then? Well, yeah, and he's you just know. got it coming. You know, he's finding out Meade is being repulsed. Gibbon's been wounded. Um, and two, it's kind of like you know, in May of 63 at Chancellorsville with what happened to Hooker, like Mm -hmm. that could have been very well the same thing that you get in this situation and you just, you know, and I think it would happen to to anybody. So it, you know, how much, and Burnside, I know takes a lot of criticism for this battle, but I can't imagine being him and having to see the repulses on Mary's Heights and then getting the bad news from Prospect Hill. Yeah, yeah. I think it, to me, I was just thinking like an analogy. It's like coaching. I mean, mm-hmm. he wasn't good at the in-game decisions. You know, yeah. he, he came up with the game plan, and we see this from as soon as he doesn't get the pontoon bridges. Mm-hmm. I mean, he came up with the game plan, which if he had everything went right, I, I think you could say definitely it, it made sense. But then the delays happen, and then you know, battle happens. Stuff's not getting communicated well. Um, and then it leads to this piecemeal charge, and you just can't adapt to the situation. Um, and, and then that leads to disaster. And then there's kind of, you know, when you look at somebody like, if you look at it from the Confederate standpoint, you know, here's General Lee about to have another victory, and he'll have another victory at Chancellorsville, and they say that was one of the things that led to him you know, making the decision for Pickett's charge was that he was actually beginning to believe my men can do this because they've done it at the previous two battles. And then, well, we all know what happened with Pickett's charge, but um, it's interesting to look at it from that standpoint too, with, you know, how the victory could make you think, oh, my troops can do this because they've done it here and they've done it there. Like, why wouldn't they be able to do it this time as well? You know? Yeah, no, I, I agree with that too. I mean, looking back at it, Lee, Lee just had a flawed strategy. I think from the mm-hmm. beginning. I mean, you're a defensive country who's trying. You're a country who's trying to break away. You're not looking to take any land no. or repossess any land. All right, especially after Gettysburg. You know, you you don't get it. You should have dropped back to a more defensive position and just dug mm-hmm. in. Yeah, and then kill the will of the North, but that I, I guess that's easy to say. But once you're having mm-hmm. every battle go your way, everybody's playing it off like you're the you know you're the bee's knees. I, I believe that was a big saying in the Civil War. Yes, bee's knees. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know if I meet Ron a while, I have to ask him if he's seen it a lot in uh, primary sources. But um, yeah, I mean, there's all those different factors that get weighed mm-hmm. in. That's sometimes you got to think about. Well, and that's what made me realize, you know, like Fredericksburg is an important battle to study for just, you know, not because it's the first case of urban warfare, but also these, just the confusion that happened with the Army of the Potomac, but also just is this, it's leading into decisions that are made later on, I think, on both sides. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think these are all great points. I, I think one... One item that I'm always interested in or fascinated by is that this is the only war, the only American war, at least, where both sides were, for the most part, trained in the same place. Like, mm-hmm. um, the the amount of leaders on both sides that came out of West Point um, from a fairly short amount of time. So, you know, I, I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's too shocking that the, you know, the, the defensiveness was similar and the audacious attacks were similar 
um, and they just didn't they didn't work for the Union and they did for the Confederacy. But you know, I think that this is interesting because there's not you know they're they're trained from you know they they were they were all once in the same army literally you know so or yeah. many of them were at least uh, so I think that that plays a, a significant role. It's not like it's not like mid nineteenth century warfare was just like that. I mean, of course, of course it was and it, to, to a large degree. But the nuance, you know, there's probably a little bit less nuance, or at least the nuance maybe was a little more important because there were so many similarities between a lot mm -hmm. of the folks leading the army, at least in training and preparation goes. Um, oh, and they both, um, John Gibbon, actually, who we've mentioned a few times because he was at Fredericksburg, he actually wrote what is called the Artillerist Manual. Mm -hmm. Both sides used that manual. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's insane. Like, normally you're looking at, I mean, different weapons, different, um, you know, I mean, not vastly different styles. I mean, obviously, you know, warfare up to that point was about gaining ground and defending ground, like, mm -hmm. you know, but, but still it's, you know, um, and that's why I think people like, uh, you know, uh, Forrest and Jeb Stewart kind of emerged because they, they did things with the cavalry that wasn't, that was non-traditional mm -hmm. and kind of outside the box. Um, and Grant, I think to a large degree, he was a West Pointer, um, but I think Grant and Sherman were a little um, willing to kind of break the mold a little bit, or at least mm -hmm. to to sustain a little bit more of the losses that were kind of inherent in some of those strategies. So that's interesting stuff. Uh, we are getting close to our hour, uh, which we try to shoot for an hour every week. Is there anything else on the battle itself? Um, I did want to talk to Nick a little bit about visiting a national park, or at least a Civil War national park during the shutdown, just to kind of get a just a first person or a firsthand account of what that was like. Um, well, just to wrap up with the battle, so the Burnside ends up retreating across the river um, on December the 15th. Um, and Lincoln said of the battle when he found out about the loss, if there is a place worse than hell, I am in it. So this was extremely hard for Lincoln to go through as well. Um, this was also the battle where General Lee said after, if war were not so terrible, we should grow so fond of it. Um, total number of casualties was 18,500. The Union, 12,500, and the Confederates, 6,000. Uh, Burnside ends up being relieved of command at the end of January of 1863, and he will be replaced by General Joseph Hooker. Um, Fredericksburg will be the first major opposed river crossing in the U.S. military history. It's the first time Union and Confederate troops fight in the streets of a town. And um, Governor Andrew Curtin to President Lincoln said, it was not a battle, it was butchery. So this is not, you know, as you said, it's not the shining moment for the Army of the Potomac. It is very much a defeat. And it's a battle that I think, as we discussed, like decisions in the future will be based upon what happened here. Yeah, and I think that, yeah, like we kind of mentioned at the beginning of the first episode, um, I think it's unique in its combat, but it's also important in its implication um, and I think a huge takeaway um, that they definitely point out in the Ken's Burn Ken Burns documentary is that this solidified uh, the reputation of the Northern soldier. You know, a lot of um, a lot of the Confederates thought that the North was not going to be nearly as tough or um, you know as uh, brave as they would, and this um, proved that that was not the case at all, and that they were quite brave. So. Fascinating battle. So, Nick, what was it like to go to a National Park-supported Civil War battlefield during the government shutdown that is up now and believe it's 20th day? Uh, well, Fredericksburg, it really wasn't that big of an issue, I guess, because it's in a town. I, I'm sure it would have been drastically different if it was Gettysburg or Shiloh or especially like a Shiloh or Antietam where it's a little bit more removed from town, kind of out there more in the country area. Um, but to be honest, I, I, we, we didn't really notice it much because Fredericksburg is a very old town, you know, Revolutionary War. Um, literally, George Washington grew up there. Um, I could actually see, you know, the story of him throwing that silver dollar across the river. Um, like we, we could see where, you know, his home was there. Um, so... Um, it, it's a, it's a very sweet old town. It's got kind of that, this old town vibe to it. Um, so the things that we couldn't do, you go out to the Manor, Chatham Manor, that's where Burnside's headquarters were. 
Um, and if the government shutdown was going on, we'd be able to go inside there. So what is in there up for offering? Not quite sure. Um, and also the museum. So the museum does have a brief documentary, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. That's supposed to be pretty solid. Um, so I didn't get to see that. However, the bookstore was open uh, because they're on separate funding. They were kind of, I don't know if they're still open now because they didn't even know if they were going to be open the next day because we spent two days there. The first day we got there around four. So we walked down to Mary's Heights, popped in the bookstore, and then I wasn't quite sure what I wanted yet. So I'm like, you can be open tomorrow. And he's like, we're not quite sure. We think so, but we might not be. Um, so just kind of give you the idea of the budget they were running on. Mm -hmm. So I'd be shocked if they're still open, if that was kind of the attitude then. Um, then that's where I told them about my grand plan because my plan was we were about in the middle of Fredericksburg. So the plan was to get up, go early, walk out to Burnside's headquarters, go down to the first pontoon bridge, which we did. Follow the retreat of the Confederates through the town, which we did. Then we, once we got on the edge of town, close to the sunken road, we then walked down to the second pontoon. And then we walked up that way that the Irish Brigade would have taken, up to the sunken road. And then we walked all the way out to the Union left. So we pretty much walked all the Confederate line, which was about seven miles. Plus going to the Union headquarters. I told the guys at the bookstore who were, I think, I think they're park rangers technically. Um, and they kind of just like laughed at me. I found out they literally were hanging out at like a colleague's going away party, I think, or birthday party. And they like made fun of me because they didn't think I'd do it. So me and Kara did it. I went back to that bookstore. I went straight up to one of the gentlemen and I'm like, I did it. I showed him my Fitbit just to prove that I had the mileage there. And he goes, damn, we didn't think you'd do it. And he shook my hand. <laughs> and he goes, this is why you're everybody's favorite rail splitter. <laughs> and I go, damn, right. Actually, I was so tired. I didn't even think about mentioning the rail splitter or trying to get there. But, yeah, 19.1 miles we put in that day. So. Oh. You're very close to a lot of different battlefields there. It's actually called the Spotsylvania and Fredericksburg National Park. Um, and so you got Chancellorsville, which is right out there, and the wilderness. So if you were going out and looking at all of that, I would highly recommend making your headquarters in Fredericksburg. Um, we stayed at the Marriott Courtyard. Very nice hotel. I think it was closed in between 150 200 a night. There's a ton of bed and breakfast is there though um there's a lot of stuff to do at night you know if you're a big a beer drinker you know they got all these craft breweries they actually have like a beer exchange building which was kind of fascinating i don't That's know how cool. that works um, a lot of like used bookstores went in there bought some stuff um so yeah it, i it, we enjoyed it a great deal i wish we had more time there instead of just the two nights um so i would highly recommend stopping in there as far as a battlefield, um, you know, stuff has been built over, um, but they do a nice job marking stuff in the city. Um, and you get a good idea of kind of what it was like. So um, as far as a battle that took place in an urban area, I would say it's pretty well kept up. Uh, but do not go there thinking you're going to get, um, you know, a Shiloh, Gettysburg, Antietam preservation because you're not um, – and then the park, uh, the people at the bookstore were great too. So, highly recommend there. Fredericksburg is awesome. Excellent. So, um, I, when I was at the Chickamauga battlefield, I ran a half marathon, which was fewer miles than Nick did at Fredericksburg, just <laughs> walking around. Nick basically <laughs> walked what Sherman's men walked every day on the march. Oh, bringing him down a peg. I like that. <laughs> yeah, could, yeah, just do that every day for a yeah. few months. So, um, you know what? Whatever. <laughs> so, we hope you enjoyed our. I was complimenting uh, you. That was a lot to walk. I think so too. I think so too. Uh, so, we hope you enjoyed our two-parter on Fredericksburg. Sorry for the big gap in the middle. 
Uh, we did want to remind you, if those of you who are in the Midwest or anywhere in the Illinois, northern Illinois region, uh, Nick and I will be going to our local museum, which is called the Midway Village Museum, to see Ronald White give a talk. And it looks like that talk's going to be about Grant and his work on Grant. So uh, we'll be there. Uh, Nick, did you get your ticket yet? No. Oh, good, because I bought two, so I got you. <laughs> Um, oh, okay, good. Yeah, they're, they're 10 bucks, so I'm sure it'll work itself out. So anyway, uh, yeah, but it's only a $10 event uh, for an hour. So if you're in the area, let us know. Um, we're going to try to reach out and hopefully get something. Um, there'll definitely be some RailSplitter content on it, put it that way. It might just be Nick and I talking about it. Um, but we'll try to see if we can do a little bit more. So uh, in the next couple of weeks, we'll do our second installment of the RailSplitter Book Club. So uh, in the next two or three chapters, we'll give you some specifics uh, next week. Uh, other than that, we hope everybody had a great New Year. Is there anything else I uh, forgot to mention, Mary or Nick? No. no. I don't think so. Are we doing our usual two things? Oh, man. both. I, for, I almost forgot both of our features. How about that? Uh, man, we had two weeks for a social media post. I'm so out of it. I didn't even think to do it, so I'm not going to scramble to find one i did enjoy seeing some you know new year's messages and uh holiday messages and all that so um thank you for all that um mary or nick did you have a social media post for our of the people by the people i've got one um and it comes from my friend jen and you can find her on twitter at um jen rolling so j-e-n-r-o-l-i-n-g art um, and they're an artist and last night they went to see, um, Spider-Verse and she did this really cool kind of con concept drawing of Spider-Man in a union general's, uh, or in a union uniform. And he's kind of hanging out over a little round top. Um, and the story behind it is she messaged me last night and said, do you have any battlefield pictures? And of course I'm like, boy, yeah, duh. <laughs> Of course I do. So I sent her a few. And um, so thank you to her for using one of my pictures as the background to this image that she she did. And it, it looks really, really awesome. Um, just the drawing of Spider-Man in basically Spider-Man meets Civil War. So and uh, their account is really worth a follow. Um, the artwork is amazing. She does a lot of General Sherman stuff um, as well. But um also into Lincoln too. Um, Lincoln's awesome, and Spider Man, Spider Verse. I say a lot of stupid shit that like I know is stupid, but some people can hear this and think it's stupid, but I actually really mean this. Spider Verse is so good; it should be seriously one of the nominees for Best Picture at the Oscars. I kid you not. Have either of you seen it? Yes. No. Dude, it is so good. It's very good. It is one of the best movies out there. Um, anyways, I also have a social media thing. From the big Lincoln... Lincolnowski. It's a playoff. Oh, to, I love uh, that. Yeah. Big Lebowski. Yeah, it's a mashup. Uh, yeah, that's good. And by the way, Jeff Bridges, the dude's Golden Globe speech was phenomenal. Hey, I agree. Um... Anyways, he posted, it's a bust of Habe Lincoln, um, which we've <laughs> probably seen this one many times, but it, he's got the shades on um, and looking cool as shit. So, um, and he says to Abe abiding, hashtag the dude, hashtag Abe Lincoln. So um, I saw that, laughed, and I enjoyed that a great deal. And I have a request this week for, for you two. Instead of uh, This Week in Lincoln, I have a This Week in Fillmore. Ooh, are you are you turning Ooh. a new leaf? Have you made a New Year's resolution to be nicer? Do you like Millard Fillmore now, Nick? I was in Fredericksburg, went into one of these collector shops, and then I came across these baseball cards. But they were baseball cards for U.S. presidents <laughs> that were made in 1957. I don't know if you guys could see this. Yeah. But they had a Millard Fillmore what? in there. I see Alec Baldwin. Oh, yeah. nice. <laughs> what is he doing and in that, the background? Uh, he's rail splitting. He's got an axe. Is what he, yes. Poser. That is so bizarre. 
and I saw it for like five dollars. Got like a write up on him, and I'm like, I have to get this. I'm Millard Fillmore's biggest fanboy. <laughs> and then I also got my real other, who I'm a fanboy of, Chester A. Arthur. Oh, nice. Uh, there was no Lincoln, just so everybody knows. I did look for a Lincoln. There was an Andrew Johnson. I was really gonna, buy- but that's ridiculous. Um, so I go, you know what? I'll just get these two. So instead of this week in Lincoln, we have a this week in Fillmore um, of Millard Fillmore baseball card from 1957. Um, yeah, I believe it's $5,000. <laughs> And, and he sold used- it to me for five. What a fool. <laughs> and he's using an axe in the background. So uh, thank you all for tuning in this week. I apologize for uh, forgetting, almost forgetting our two little features there. So uh, we will be back next week with new content. We got a great 2019 plan, and hopefully we'll be at you, coming at you almost every week, uh, bringing new stuff about Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War. Uh, but until then, please keep continuing to walk the world with malice toward none and with charity for all, and we will see you all next week.